loving Heavenly Father, we know that uh, every word from the Bible is breathed out by you, is useful for teaching, rebuking, and correcting. It guides us in ways of righteousness and points us to the gospel of your Son. We pray today that you would open your hearts by your Spirit, that you would help us to see your glory, help us to understand the gospel, and help us to live lives of reverent fear and obedience to you in response to your grace. And we pray that you would use my words in weakness and uh, in humility uh, to proclaim your word faithfully as it is written. And we ask these things uh, in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I wonder how you think that you can draw near to God. How can you draw near to God? Now, for some, that idea might be kind of aesthetic. I feel closer to God if I'm in a very impressive building. And there's only quite a lot of people in England who feel that way. If you go to a massive cathedral uh, built by the Normans, towering up, taking, uh, you know, 100 years to build, people have the sense that God is magnificent. This is a dwelling place where which surely God's presence must be here. Um, it's a magnificent place. It kind of has that feeling of transcendent awesomeness. But for others, perhaps that idea of feeling in the presence of God is, is more related to an intimate uh, uh, environment. Uh, perhaps it's more related to music uh, with guitars and everything, not such the grandiose music, but it whips up a feeling that I'm in the presence of God. Actually, I met a guy yesterday. Uh, I told him that I went on my honeymoon to the Lake District. Uh, this guy's not a Christian. He said, yeah, I love the Lake District. When I go there, I somehow feel closer to God. You can kind of understand that. It's a beautiful place. It abounds with the beauty of God's creation. Perhaps for others, the idea of feeling close to God is a kind of Zen-like calm. I'm going to feel closer to God when I empty my mind. I'm going to take a brain dump, and I'm going to feel calm and relaxed, and that way I'm going to feel closer to God. Now, for some, it might actually be, and perhaps it's a bigger issue for Christians, personal holiness. My sense of my proximity to God, whether I'm near to him or far to him, is based on a daily basis of how well I'm doing in my life. So if I wake up in the morning and I do a nice quiet time, I don't argue with my wife on the way to driving to work, I'm able to tolerate that person who is extremely annoying in the office, I'm doing everything well, well, I feel close to God that day. On a day where I wake up in a sour mood, uh, I'm mean to my wife, we barely exchange pleasant words over the breakfast table, we drive in a grumpy mood, I get to the office, that guy who is intensely irritating irritates me all of the way. Uh, I I work at the moment in the pastoral office, so uh, uh, I can't really reveal who that is. Um, Yeah, his name might rhyme with Tim Phillips, but... (laughs) Uh, I'm kidding. Um, But that might be a problem for us. Our our idea of closeness to God is based on our performance, how we're doing at that particular time. But for others, perhaps there's this feeling that, actually, I I don't really feel a great deal of problem drawing close to God because God is kind of my buddy. We're we're best pals. We're like that. I, I can go before God and, yeah, because of Jesus, no problem. And there might be degrees of truth in all of those statements, but today we're looking at the amazing truth that God intends to draw near to broken, sinful people, that is, people like you and me, 
And by looking at how God intends to draw near to the Israelites, we're going to see the true way or a pattern of the true way in which we draw near to the living God. Now, uh, I wonder, when you've been reading the book of Exodus so far, have you seen any hint of a purpose statement? Um, Why is it that God has taken his people out of Egypt? Now, purpose statements are really helpful, by the way. It's kind of a key way we read our Bible, so it's really helpful when the writer tells us why he's writing something. Like John does that in his gospel. I'm writing these things to you so that you may know that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and by believing in him, you may have life in his name. And you're like, thanks, John. That's really helpful. Because now I can understand everything else in your gospel. Yeah? Uh, he does the same thing in his letters, actually. He's a really good guy, John. I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. Ah, oh, thank you. So when we come to things in Exodus we don't quite understand, what we need to be doing is if we look over the pattern of Exodus so far, can we find purpose statements that have been written along the way so that we can understand what is the key thrust of the book? And I think we've stumbled upon a couple of them so far. Firstly, when God meets Moses in chapter 3 in Sinai for the first time, that is in the burning bush, you get the notion that God is acting in covenant faithfulness to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Remember, to Abraham, he had made this promise that he would make a great nation out of Abraham. He would bring him into the place of Canaan, and he would bless them. He would be, um, uh, God would be his God. So when God is bringing the Israelites out of Egypt, he's acting in covenant faithfulness. There is a continuity of the narrative from Genesis. Um, But it's not just that, because God doesn't take them out of Israel and kind of just leave them be. The narrative doesn't stop at Exodus 15. There is a purpose to the covenant. There is a purpose to the covenant. And if you look at chapter 6 of Exodus, just look at chapter 6 with me, you get a little bit more detail in the context of the oppression of Pharaoh. Chapter 6, verse 7 says this, Say therefore to the people of Israel... I am the Lord, I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm, with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. There is a purpose here to the Exodus. The purpose is that the Israelites will know God as their God who has brought them out. God intends to be known. And this is a pattern that we see right the way throughout the Bible. When we were doing Ezekiel last year, that was a repeated refrain, wasn't it? God says, they will know that I am the Lord. He delights in his fame, in being known, in having people with whom he can dwell amongst in covenant faithfulness. This is a delight of God. By the way, this little verse here in chapter 6, verse 7, that is repeated right the way throughout the Bible. That's kind of, you get little markers of it all the way throughout in Israel's history. Yeah? I took Israel to to be my people and I would be their God. And eventually when you get to the exile, it's reversed. And it's kind of a shocking reverse because God says to them, you're not my people and I will not be your God. It's kind of, that's a massive shock statement. This verse here is significant. Look forward now to chapter 15. So in chapter 15, you had... The people had just crossed the Red Sea. You've got the narrative of that event. Now, in 15, you've got Moses' song, which is kind of like the theological reflection on what has just happened. So you not just get the historical narrative, you get the meaning behind that narrative. And uh, Moses is exulting in the victory of God. 
He is saying God has brought us out of Egypt. Uh, He's brought us through the Red Sea. He has completely decimated his enemies. But it doesn't stop there because Moses knows that the narrative is not going to stop there. At the end of his song, whilst he's exulting in the salvation, he goes on to speak of Israel as being brought to the holy abode of God. So look with me. If you just look at uh, verse 17, he says, You will bring them in and plant them on your mountain, the place, O Lord, which you have made for your abode, the sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. God's intention is to bring the people out that he might plant them and he might dwell with them. Now, you've had a bit of this in Sinai, haven't you? When the people are brought to Mount Sinai, you see God's presence is powerfully demonstrated in the cloud, the mountain shakes, the voice speaks out clearly so that all of Israel can hear. But the thing is, Sinai is not the final destination and Sinai is not the mountain that Moses is talking about in 15. Sinai is not the end point. The promised land, the Jerusalem where God is, is going to make his name known in the city of his king, in the city of his temple, that's the destination that's being talked about there. So Sinai is a stop-off. It's a very important stop-off. It's where they get the law. But whilst they're en route to Canaan, Israel is now going to have the presence of God manifested with them as they had it manifested at Sinai. They're going to have a kind of portable Sinai. And the tabernacle is going to represent to them, whilst they are en route, the presence of God with them, his covenant people. It's a symbol of his presence as authorized by him. So now when Andrew preached, remember he's already preached on the tabernacle, so I'm kind of doing the same thing, right? You get kind of double for your money. In in, in, In chapters 25 to 31... Moses is being told by God all about the pattern of this tabernacle, and it's extremely long, and we find it very difficult, but we have got a purpose statement hidden in uh, chapter 29, verse 45. Purpose statements, I love them. I will dwell among the people of Israel and will be their God, and they shall know that I am the Lord their God, who brought them out of the land of Egypt, that I might dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. Okay, so now it's being made explicit. In this whole tabernacle narrative, God has brought Israel out in order that he might dwell among them, and this kind of elaborate tent is going to be the way that, that they are going to relate to him. It is going to be the way that they do draw near to God. Right. The God who draws near. What's the problem with that? So we've had the purpose. That's God's intention to draw near to his people. Now what's the problem with that? Now, look, if you've read Exodus with kind of even the slightest modicum of careful attention, and we've been preaching it for 10 weeks, so hopefully you've picked this up. But in the, in the last couple of weeks, we've been looking at Mount Sinai, and we should see that dwelling with the holy God is not a simple thing. In fact, Mount Sinai goes to very, very significant lengths to emphasize the transcendent glory of God and Israel's distance from him. Do you remember at the mountain in chapter 19? Don't approach the mountain. Don't approach the mountain on pain of death. Whole mountain shakes. The people are so terrified, they do not want God to speak to them. Yeah? Even when Moses goes up the mountain, he has to wait seven days before he can go all the way up. Yeah? He takes the elders with him in 24. They go up a certain way, and they kind of see God, 
But it's only Moses that goes right the way up. There's a distance there. It's both a spatial distance and it's temporal. You can't quite approach God that easily. But yet the tabernacle is the remarkable statement that God will indeed dwell with these same people. So here you've got the God who is transcendent and distant, but in the tabernacle what is being emphasized is his proximity, that is, his closeness to the people of Israel. Why do you think the narrative of the tabernacle is being repeated? Is it because Moses is a kind of very thorough sort of chap? He likes to record events as they are. So what has happened is God has told him, you will build the tabernacle like this. Six chapters long. Thank you very much, Moses. And then what he's going to do is he's going to build it. And he really wants us to know all the details. So he goes, and now I built it like this. Thanks, Moses. Yeah, that's six weeks, six days of Bible reading that's quite hard. When we were looking at the tabernacle before, if we were reading it in the context of Sinai, we see a problem. Now that we're reading it again, after chapter 35, in the context of the golden half, we have a much more magnified problem. It's a very significant problem. The issue of the golden calf is now a really big problem. <laughs> I can't think of another way to express it. A massive problem. And actually, the whole of the structure from 25 is kind of folded around this point. So Andrew brought this up, and I've put it in the, uh, in the sheet for you. So just have a look at the, uh, the service sheet with me. Uh, in there, uh, you've got what's called a chiasm. Now, a chiasm is kind of a literary structure that is purposefully symmetrical about a significant point that gives a context or clarity to the whole, Right? So the material has been ranged in such a way that it's kind of mirrored around a central point that's going to help us to understand what's going on. And so you see at the beginning, you've got the glory of the Lord is on Sinai. And then at the end, you've got the glory of the Lord is going to cover the tabernacle. You've got the long narrative about the tabernacle being commissioned, kind of parallel with the tabernacle actually being built. Uh, You've got the Sabbath commands, which are kind of bookends there. Tablets of the covenant. And right in the middle, right in the very center, in 32 to 34, is the golden calf, the sin of the idolatry, the breaking of those three commandments, where Israel rebelled against God, broke the covenant, and Moses had to make intercession uh, that God would not destroy them. That is no accident. That affects the way we read this passage. So if we understand that the tabernacle is is, is symbolic of God dwelling in, in his side of true worship, the fact that it is ranged around an incident of crass idolatry should raise certain questions for us. Number one being, how on earth can that be? We are looking now at God dwelling with his people, but this time in the context of a large-scale, corporate, and blatant sin. The outcome of that sin, be reminded, was that 3,000 of the Israelites were slaughtered. The outcome of which was a plague that was sent upon the people. This is a very, very serious business. And we see that it's a serious business, even greater than the death of those 3,000 people. Come with me to uh, chapter 32, verse 10. God says to Moses, Let me alone, that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them, in order that I may make a great nation out of you. Okay? God states his intention to destroy the people of Israel, and God does not bluff. And, and his idea that he can make a new nation out of Moses, well, that, that's kind of happened before, right? Do you remember the, the Genesis narrative? 
You got Adam, all the people, God looks upon the earth and behold, the hearts of man was only sinful all the time and so he elected to destroy all of humanity and start over with Noah. So this has got precedent. But I mean, doing that with Noah didn't really solve the issue. Noah was still sinful and his his children and, and the problem of sin still abounded. Now in 32 verse 30, Moses tries to offer his own life in exchange. So we know that that Israel does deserve the condemnation of God and that the just response is their death. Moses tries to offer up his own life, but he fails. God tells Moses next, in 32.30, I think it is, he tells Moses to go to the promised land, but that God will not go among them. Why does he not go among them? Lest I consume them. So the presence of God is going to create a profound issue. God says, I'm not going to go out with these people because if I do, I'm going to destroy them. Because the issue of their sin is still there. Do you remember actually as well, in Egypt, the presence of God, so sometimes we, we kind of get language in Christian circles, I just I want to draw near to the presence of God. I really want to, you know, I want to feel God's presence. Um, if that's not properly understood, then, then that's kind of dangerous, isn't it? In Egypt, the presence of God was um, actually profoundly dangerous for the Egyptians, if you remember. God was present in Egypt on the night that all of the firstborn died. The presence of God in the context of unresolved sin is frightful. It's terrifying. It also defeats the entire point. Later, when Moses is talking to God again, he says that the idea that that they could leave, but God not go with them, defeats the entire point. He says, if your presence, in 33 verse 15, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. What is the point of being brought out of Egypt, God, if your presence is not going to go with us? How is everyone going to know about the glory of your name that, that we have been set apart out of all the nations unless your glory goes with us? And God says that he will indeed go with them. And so now that creates a major problem, because is God just capricious? Does he change his mind? Does he flip-flop? I'm going to destroy them. I'm going to consume them. Moses says, oh, please, could you come with us anyway? And God says, oh, all right, then. Don't worry about the fact that I could destroy them. No, there, there is a major problem here. In the light of everything God has said, how is it even vaguely possible for God to be consistent? There is a tension that is there. He does still say, though, at the end of that section, that he will still visit the sin of Israel upon them. So even though he's going to go up with them, the sin is still going to be visited upon the people of Israel. And you get in the name of God, which comes just immediately after, God is merciful and gracious, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, but who will by no means clear the guilty. Here's the tension. It almost feels unresolved. You've got God on the one hand who wants to draw close to a sinful people, but on the other hand, he acknowledges and Moses acknowledges that their sin means that the holy God will destroy them. The two things for, for me to distill it, right? Here's the problem. God will be just and he will visit the sin of Israel upon them. And the appropriate sentence is Israel's destruction. Okay, that's the problem. So any means of God dwelling with Israel has to reckon with those two things. And that is the problem of us as well. We are, by nature, a rebellious people, a people who are in enmity, enmity with God a people who outside of Christ hate him. And the just sentence upon us is that we be condemned and destroyed. In that sense, we don't want to draw near to God. We want to flee from God. And that is what the Bible says that we do instinctively. If we are to draw near to God, we need something or someone who can effectively deal with that dilemma. 
So now, what we have in the tabernacle is the pattern. So the purpose is to dwell. We've got the problem with God's dwelling, and now we've got the pattern of God dwelling in the light of those problems. Okay. Now, this is the pattern of true worship in the context of a pattern of false worship that we saw in the golden calf. Okay. The tabernacle is going to reveal to us a great reality about how we can draw close to God. And before we even begin, the text of Exodus 35 to 40 is telling us that this is not really an effective reality immediately. Um, Look with me at chapter 35, okay? Uh, Which is the beginning of our text today. I've got six chapters to preach on, so I'm whizzing through it. Uh, Go to verse 4 of 35. Moses said to all the congregation of the people of Israel, this is the thing that the Lord has commanded. Take from among you a contribution to the Lord. Whoever is of a generous heart, let him bring up the Lord's contribution, gold, silver, and bronze, okay? And all the other stuff. Okay, now remember what happened in the golden calf. The people brought up their gold and offered it as a contribution to build this object of false worship and idolatry. I think there's already a hint in 35 that actually by getting the people to offer up their gold to make a place where God dwells, there's something kind of inadequate because they did exactly the same thing in order to build an object of false worship. How can the dwelling place of the true God be made in such circumstances? And we already know from the rest of the Bible, and we should know by intuition, that God is, can't really dwell in a place uh, that is built by human hands. Just in the sense that his goodness and all of his being cannot be reduced to the crass idolatry of a golden calf, neither can his abode be reduced ultimately to a tent. It is only really by his grace, it's an image that he institutes that he graciously sets forward this precision to give us an image of an even greater reality. I'll be using the book of Hebrews quite a lot because it's the moderator here. It helps us to understand what's really going on. If you go to Hebrews 9, Hebrews describes the whole tabernacle structure. Hang on, don't need to go there just yet. This is only one sentence. As a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. Okay? And in 9 verse 11, actually, it's qualified. The greater and more perfect tent not made by hands, that is, not of this creation. So Hebrews is saying all of this is a pattern, it is a shadow, and there is a greater reality. So everything we're going to be looking at is going to inform us of what the true reality is. And even all of its deficiencies are going to help us understand what the true reality is. It is a pattern, but it is an extremely valuable pattern. So what do we see in this pattern? Abundantly, we see the need for a sacrifice. The whole tabernacle is set up as a place for the sacrificial system. The bronze altar, taking the blood and having to, to splash it around the, the entire tent to purify it, having to place the, uh, the, the blood in the holy of holies to make atonement for sin. The whole idea that the priesthood is set about to do this role. And in the golden calf narrative, that makes perfect sense. We've been told several times that Israel deserves to be wiped out. So if God's going to dwell among them, they need a kind of reminder that this is the case. And the sacrificial system reminds them constantly that something else is dying when they should have. This is penal substitution. There is a death that's happening in the camp, but it isn't the Israelites. It's the animal. It's a reminder to all of the camp. But we obviously know that this isn't the real deal. And I think probably so did they. God still said that he would visit their sin upon them. And the sin is not being visited upon these, these, uh, these animals. Because they have, to repeat it year, uh, they, um, they have to repeat it all the way throughout the year. So they're repeating these sacrifices. 
Now, if you notice, the tabernacle was built on the first day of the new year, which is a whole year after the Passover. So God sacrificed then with the lamb. Next year, we're setting up another place for sacrifice. Uh, Look with me at Hebrews 10, verse 1. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, they would, not have, would they not have ceased to be offered? Since the worshippers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sin every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. So every single time when this happens, there is a reminder that sin needs to be dealt with by a penal substitution Something has to die, but there is a reminder because they keep having to do it that this thing isn't actually it. We understand, don't we, now, in the light of the cross, that it's Jesus who makes that one perfect, full, and sufficient sacrifice. He is the ultimate um, penal substitute. He is the one who does die and bear the wrath of God in our place and in the place of the rebellious Israelites. God did indeed visit his judgment upon the people of Israel in an ultimate sense, because those who are trusting in him, their sin is judged at the cross, like ours. Remember the Romans bit? In his patience and forbearance, God overlooked the sins of the past. But in Christ, everything is being judged. So they understood now, through the substitute, that God could dwell with them in such a manner that his holiness and integrity was not compromised in this shadow. Now, let's have a look at the priest we see that this sacrifice has to be mediated by a special kind of guy. Um, now, in the, in the bit that we're looking at today, there are kind of two creation narratives. First, you've got the construction of the tabernacle. You've got the place. And then you've kind of got the construction of the, the man who is going to minister in this place, or at least his clothes. Uh, and the clothes are highly elaborate. Yeah? We get the breast piece. Uh, with the names of Israel engraved upon it. So when the priest goes into the tabernacle, he is symbolically bearing the guilt, the burden of Israel. Uh, This is a man who will offer up a sacrifice on behalf of the entire nation. Um, But with all of this fantastic get-up, with this guy who is kind of dressed like a very magnificent Christmas tree, um, there are hints that this is only a picture. What do you think is, is one of the biggest hints? Try to read 39 verse 1. Who's going to be wearing these clothes? Who are these clothes for? For Aaron. They made the holy garments for Aaron. Right, now where have we seen Aaron last time? Go with me to 32. Now look down with me at verse Uh, 1 to verse 6. Just read that through and count the number of times that Aaron's name crops up. Uh, I'm a maths teacher, by the way, so I'm checking your numeracy. I found that quite stark, right? Aaron's name is being repeated quite a few times. He's a guy who's being pointed out as being quite culpable, I think. Yeah, they gathered together to Aaron. Aaron said to them, take off the gold, give them to me. They took it all off. They gave it to Aaron. And Aaron received the gold, fashioned it with a graving tool, made a golden calf, and then he said, these are your gods, O Israel. Oh, sorry, they said, sorry. Uh, Verse 5, Aaron saw this, he built an altar. Aaron made proclamation and said, tomorrow shall be a feast of the Lord. Right? Aaron is kind of like the idolater in chief. 
He's the guy who actually commands they bring all of this stuff to him and then he makes it into the flipping idol. He just, you know, it's ridiculous. This guy is now the priest. This guy is now the guy who's going to represent the sin of all the people before the Lord in the tabernacle. It's almost a joke. A complete joke. I mean, it's very evident that this guy is not really equipped to mediate for Israel before the Lord. In chapter 39, he's, he's got a big crown on his head saying, holy to the Lord. Yeah? You're Israel. You're looking at that guy. That guy's got to go represent you. I, I'm not sure I would be terribly happy about that. If you're in court and you're asking to be represented, you don't ask a convict to be your lawyer. This is ridiculous. And the text is very, um, it's picking out Moses all the time, picking him out. And actually, if you look down with me at um, verse, the end of chapter 32, Look at verse 35, right at the end. The Lord sent a plague on the people of Israel. Why did he do that? Because they made the calf. What calf? The one that Aaron had made. They're pointing him out again. This calf, the one that this dude made. By the way, that dude's now going to represent you. So Aaron is picked out as being responsible for the curses and for the death and for the destruction. And now he is responsible for mediating such that that curse is taken away. No, there are other hints as well, okay? So when they're being anointed, uh, look with me at uh, chapter 40, verse 14 and 15. What do you get? You get, you shall bring his sons also and put coats on them and anoint them as you anointed their father. They may serve me as priests. And their anointing shall admit them to a perpetual priesthood throughout their generations. Now, why is Aaron's sons being brought there? Do you think God is saying, ooh, I reckon you know, Aaron might not be up to it, but I bet you his sons will be good guys. They'll probably do a better job. Well, no, they don't, because in numbers, they're destroyed by the Lord for, for false worship. Okay, so that's not the answer. I think the answer is kind of obvious, right? Aaron's going to snuff it at one point. The guy's going to die. So if you thought that being represented by a convict was a bad idea, imagine being represented by a corpse. Okay. That's not going to work either. So there has to be a continuity. Remember, all these sacrifices are being repeated because they're a model, and so we need to have people to carry that on. But the fact that we need people to carry it on because of death reminds us that this is only a model. There is a reality that is ahead. Not only that, look in chapter, um, uh, chapter 40, or in chapter 39 as well, all of the sacrifices that have to be made for the priest just so that he is ready and able to serve as a priest. All of these sacrifices have to happen for him. Hebrews 7, uh, verse 23. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he, that is Christ, holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. In the other parts of Hebrews, he says he's able to operate his priesthood on the power of an indestructible life. So here's the deficiency. Aaron's sons and Aaron all die, so they can't really represent you before God, and even if they didn't, you know, they're sinful anyway, la. So not very good. Christ not only is sinless, He lives forever by the power of the indestructible life. Therefore, if you draw near to him, he is able to save utterly to the uttermost any who draw near to him. 
The guarantee is when you approach Christ, he is able to save you. He's the true priest. If you continue on, verse 26, for it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, unlike Aaron, innocent, unlike Aaron, unstained, unlike Aaron, separated from sinners, unlike Aaron, who is the chief sinner, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, unlike Aaron, like those high priests, to offer sacrifice daily, first for his own sins, unlike Aaron, and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. The law appoints men in their weakness, like Aaron, to be high priests. But the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. Now, the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. Every deficiency that Aaron has, perfected by Christ. And every good thing that Aaron does, by, by giving us the model of offering the sacrifice for sin, Christ does even better. He offers up himself once without the need to offer a sacrifice for himself. He is able to save to the uttermost. And you notice as well in chapter 8, uh, verse 2, he's a minister in the holy places in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. So you remember this tent set up by the hands of human man, the same hands that made the calf? That's where Aaron's ministering. Christ ministers in the reality. He ministers in the heavens. Everything about him is better. Glory. At the end of 40, right? We have the, the glory of God descends upon the tabernacle as in a cloud. Yeah? Now, that's kind of like the royal standard. You go to England. I went to England and went to Windsor Castle. Windsor Castle is one of the official residences of the Queen. It's very nice. And if you go there and you see, a, I think it's a yellow flag flying atop that, that is the royal standard. It denotes that the monarch, the Queen, is there. The glory of the Lord descending upon the cloud is kind of like that. It denotes his presence. It's his stamp upon the tabernacle. It's a sign to all of Israel that he does indeed dwell among them in glory. And that's something that can be traced right the way throughout the Bible. Yeah? The glory that fills the temple when it's built by Solomon, the glory that departs in Ezekiel, the glory that returns to a new temple. When we see John 1, the word became flesh, Christ became flesh, he tabernacled among us, and we have seen his glory. In the transfiguration, when, when Christ is up the mountain just before his crucifixion, the mountain is covered with a cloud. The glory of the Lord descends upon it as a cloud, and the point is, this is my son. This is the true tabernacle. This is the place that you are to come to worship. I am validating this man, Christ. The model is the tabernacle. The reality is the Son of God veiled in human flesh. This is the one. That's what that's doing. Now also consider this, right? Moses has been somewhat accustomed to dwelling in the presence of the glory of God in the cloud. He saw the glory in the burning bush. He goes to Sinai. He goes up. He goes up. He goes down. He goes up. He goes down. It's like a, you know elevator. He's going up into the glory of the cloud. And he dwells there for 40 days on two separate occasions. But now, look down. You get at the end of Exodus, what happens? Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Now, Moses is not able to enter. At this point, he is the prophet and savior par excellence, but he cannot enter. He can't get in. So we need someone better than Moses as well. And in Hebrews 6, I think we, we get this idea as well. Jesus is the forerunner in Hebrews who goes into the heavenly places so we can follow him. 
So not only was Moses not able to enter, and he's like the best guy in all Israel, in the reality, Christ has entered, and he is a forerunner for us. He goes in, and we can go in after him. Okay, my last point. This is a pattern of new creation. Okay, this is a pattern of new creation. Uh, In what Andrew preached... Uh, when he first started talking about the tabernacle, that section has got seven repetitions of uh, the word of the Lord came to Moses. Okay, so the word of the Lord came to Moses, build this part of the tabernacle. The word of the Lord came to Moses, build this part of the tabernacle. Seven seven times, at the end of it, you got the Sabbath. Okay, that is a creation narrative. And actually, in, in here, you've got that kind of structure as well. Throughout, you've got two sets of um, sevens. Yeah, so you've got the building of the tabernacle, which has got a refrain of, according to the word of the Lord, according to the word of the Lord, seven times. And you've got the building of the priest's garments, which is the same. Seven times, according to the word of the Lord, according to the word of the Lord, according to the word of the Lord. And ending with the plate on his head, which is holy to the Lord. Like the Sabbath, right? The Sabbath is a day that is holy to the Lord. There is an idea, I think, that's being picked up that this is about Sabbath rest. This is about new creation. You've got the creation of God's place, remember, in Genesis 1, the cosmos, and you've got the creation of God's perfect man who dwells in God's presence. And now you've kind of got the same thing. You've got the making of God's place and you've got the making of God's minister, the person who serves him. Yeah? And there are all sorts of kind of Eden languages that are being employed here. And God is creating again, I think, in the tabernacle. But he's creating not by just starting over and destroying everyone. He's creating a new creation where people are able to dwell with him on the basis of atonement. Yeah, this is atonement. There is, there is a new creation kind of language going on. Um, we see it in, um, in Revelation. We map it through, the new creation. Uh, God dwells with them as in a temple. Uh, in, in, in a true tabernacle. And you've got God's people dwelling there. And God's people are kind of dwelling as priests. It's a priestly role they have. So the tabernacle, as we look to it, as we look at it as a pattern new creation, it's kind of a fulfilling our hope. Our hope is ultimately that we will be in the presence of God completely. That we would actually kind of be like secondary priests under Christ, that we would know him in his dwelling place and serve him. So how do we buy this? Well, Hebrews has given us, I think, three points. Come with me to Hebrews, Hebrews 12, and we'll end there. Hebrews 10, beg your pardon. He's ending off, he's speaking all this stuff about the tabernacle, telling us how it's all fulfilled. And then he says from verse 19, therefore, in other words, in light of all of the stuff that I've taught you, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, so you and I right now, we can have a confidence because of what Jesus has done, because of his role as high priest. We can have that confidence. We can enter by the new and living way that is open for us through the curtain that is through his flesh, And since we have such a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and with full assurance of faith, with a heart sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. There is an application here. The application is that God has made a way for us to draw near, so draw near. How do you draw near? You draw near through Christ. You draw near with a clean conscience, in full assurance of the faith. You are trusting that what God has done is sufficient. That's what full assurance is. You're saying, I believe that what God has done is enough. And so I'm going to draw near to him. I'm not going to feel like I'm far or away on the basis of what I've done each day. I know that I can go to Christ. I can have my, my conscience cleansed with pure water because of what Christ has done. Second, 23, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. 
for he who promises faithful. So in the light of the tabernacle, in the light of all the promises which we have now seen abundantly fulfilled, God has been faithful. Hold fast to that hope. Keep your confession as a Christian because on it, your entrance into the heavenly abode is dependent. Hold on. Everything is laid out for you in Christ. Hold on to it. And then the next let us statement is, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encourage one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So the day is drawing near when God is going to judge all the world. That day of judgment is coming. And the day when Christ will come with the cloud and we will be brought with him into the new creation, into the new temple that we, where we will dwell with God and know him as our God. That day is coming near. And so there is an urgency. And we together, we corporately are to build one another up in preparation for that. This is not a me and my salvation thing. This is an us and our hope thing. We together, corporately meet together to encourage each other in the hope that we have in Christ. I'll close there. You join me in prayer? A loving Heavenly Father, we, we praise you that you are a God who desires to draw near the sinful men, to know them as their God, to dwell amongst them and to make your name and your glory known. We thank you for uh, instituting the tabernacle as a, as a picture of the reality that we see in Christ. We pray, Heavenly Father, that we would uh, know that um, as sinful people deserving death, that you have offered up uh, the perfect sacrifice by giving us your Son. Uh, We thank you, Heavenly Father, that you have offered your Son as the perfect priest to minister uh, for us and to represent us. We pray that our feeling close to you would be through him, that we would look to him and trust in him, we would have the full assurance that we would draw near with a pure conscience, a conscience that is purified by you. We pray that we would be building one another up in preparation uh, for that coming hope. And so we ask, Heavenly Father, now that you would uh, implant this word into our hearts. You would help us to live lives throughout this week and in the future uh, in loving and gracious response to, to what you have done in Christ. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.